I trust you have your Bibles with you and ask that you would open them with me to Matthew chapter 16. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one uh, under the seat in front of you or under the seat you're sitting in um, or make a new friend and sit real close to them. And the implication is there that you would read off of their Bible. Uh, It's good. It's good to make new friends. Um, it's, It's good to share your Bible with friends, too. Sometimes I start talking and things just come out of my mouth. Matthew 16, continuing in our, uh, our series in Matthew. We're going to look at the whole chapter of Matthew 16. Um, this is, so you're probably wondering why we've gone through whole chapters like the last uh, three, uh, yeah, I guess three times that we've been in Matthew. And that's because you all have been so incredibly patient uh, with Matthew chapter 13 and us being there for like six weeks, um, I thought I'd help just kind of move us along uh, a little bit. And so we're going to look at the entire chapter of Matthew uh, 16 today. Uh, earlier this week, we had a holiday in the middle of the week, 4th of July. And uh, so my family and I, with our three girls, went to uh, my mom's house to cook hamburgers and blow stuff up in the driveway and uh, celebrate America. And uh, so we were over there having a good time. And uh, at my mom's house, she has this big uh, bag of foam uh, building blocks, just you know, lightweight foam building blocks for the girls to play with. And Ellie wanted to, uh, that's our middle daughter, she wanted to build a castle. And, and not just like any, any castle, like a castle. There's a picture on the front of the package of, of the blocks. of uh, It's, it's a, a, a real castle. And I said, honey, that's sweet and all. That's never going to work. So we'll just build our own thing. So we started building uh, this castle together. But we're building it on really plush carpet. And, and so lightweight foam blocks don't build well on plush carpet. So you have to be really particular in how you put the thing together. You have to be particular about its foundation. You have to be particular about how the pieces fit together so it doesn't fall over. You have to be particular about what it's going to look like in its final state so that it'll stand for a little while anyway before our youngest Olivia comes through and just, you know, (laughs) does her best Godzilla impersonation. Ellie and I had a lot of fun building this uh, castle together, and when it was done, I should have taken a picture of it, I didn't. Um, when it was done, we're, I was pretty impressed with what we had accomplished with these little lightweight uh, foam blocks, but we had to be really particular in how we put it together. And we started with its foundation. We started with the biggest blocks on the bottom, the most sturdy ones that we could, and we built around it. Uh, I, in my uh, uh, best engineer impersonation, took some triangular blocks and, and you know, buttressed them up against the sides to make sure we had a good, sure foundation because everything else builds up from there. In Matthew chapter 16, we've just seen Jesus feed 5,000 Jews from five loaves and 4,000 Gentiles plus women and children uh, with seven loaves. He's extending his ministry to, to the Jews and Gentiles alike. And now here in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is going to lay the groundwork, the foundation for his church, for the people who will be called by his name. He starts with a foundation. He He moves from there to to build fences or to place boundaries around what his church will look like and who will be a part of his church. And then he more clearly for us at the end uh, of Matthew 16 defines who his followers will be and what it means to be a follower of Jesus, a member of his church. So as we look at the foundations of the church, the the fences uh, for the church and its followers, we'll see that Jesus as the creator and cornerstone of the church Because he died to redeem her, because he died to save individuals through their faith in him, he then, as king and owner and builder of the church, requires then a Christ-like kind of discipleship from those who will call themselves Christians. Let's look at Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 28. Follow along in your Bibles with me. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. And when the disciples reached the other side, this is of the Sea of Galilee, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said, to them, which is kind of funny, because in the last two chapters, all they've done is played with bread, and now they have none. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. 
And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. None they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man gain in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here today who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Heavenly Father, this is your word to us as your Holy Spirit has inspired Matthew, the gospel writer, to deliver it to us. God, open our eyes to see the truth of your word. Open our ears to hear it. Soften our hearts that we might understand it, apply it to our lives, and live in obedience to it. God, you prove yourself glorious to us as we look at your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes it's helpful to look at a long passage of scripture like this, a whole chapter out of Matthew, Uh, In the order that it appears to us, start with verse one and we'll work to verse 28. However, in this case today, I think it might be more helpful to start with what I think is the centerpiece, kind of the, 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 the most important focal point of Matthew chapter 16, and then look at the other various parts related to it. Now, as you're following along, I would venture to guess that your eye and your mind, like mine, came to focus in on verses 13 through 20, where Jesus makes this fascinating statement about the church, about the building and foundation of his church. Just as Ellie and I began to build this castle on that carpet, we took some important pieces to build a foundation for that castle. And so also in verses 13 through 20, we see Jesus laying the foundation for his church. Jesus builds his church. Here in these verses, Jesus asks his disciples a very generic question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Just really generic question. Now we know that that term, Son of Man, that title is kind of a messianic title. It has implications to the promise of God, uh, to, to God's promise of a Savior that would come from Israel. But Jesus is asking just generally, who do people say that I am? And he's met with several answers that all speak to his popularity and favorability among the people. He's developed a reputation as a prophet. Maybe even one of the best prophets, Elijah or Jeremiah, raised from the dead. Jesus presses further, though, than than beyond this answer with his disciples. He asks them not a general question, but a specific question. First, he says, who do people say the Son of Man is? But then he turns to his disciples and says, but who do you say that I am? Who do you, you all, say that I am? He's gone from asking the generic to the specific in this line of questioning. And Peter, the sort of unofficial foreman or spokesman of the disciples, stands to the fore and speaks boldly, speaks up to represent the twelve, declaring that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. If you have a pencil or pen and you're not opposed to scribbling notes in your Bible, here's what I would do if I were you, because I've done it in mine. Take a pencil and in verse 13, underline the word people, underline the term son of man, Underline John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. 
And then to mark the distinction between the questions that Jesus is asking, the generic and the specific, then take your pencil and circle in verse 15 the word you and the word I and circle Peter's response. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. So that every time you come and read Matthew 16 again, you'll see the difference between the questions that Jesus is asking and the very specific response that Peter gives about Jesus, his confession of Jesus. And that's what Peter is doing. He's confessing who Jesus is. And for this confession, Jesus, or Peter saying that Jesus is the Christ, the promised Messiah, the Son of the living God, Peter is called blessed by Jesus because he's seen and understood things about Jesus that men and women on their own cannot see. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Take note of this even in your own mind. Uh, maybe underline that in your Bible as well, that flesh and blood did not reveal this to Peter. But God the Father in heaven did. And know that if you know Jesus today, if you know him as Savior, if you're confessing him as Christ, the Son of the living God, you, like Peter, have been the gracious recipient of God's revelation of who Jesus is. It is a gracious gift of God to know Jesus in truth, to see that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Celebrate that in your heart today. But then just as Peter declares who Jesus is, Jesus turns and declares who Peter is. He says, you are Peter. Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, very good, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. Interestingly, this is the first of only three times that Jesus will use the word church in all of the Gospels. He uses the, the word church only comes out of Jesus' mouth three times, once here and twice in Matthew chapter 18. This statement You are Peter on this rock. I will build my church is the definitive statement about who the church belongs to and how the church will grow. Jesus owns it. Jesus builds it. And in Jesus's response to Peter, we see specifically how the church of Jesus will be identified, how it will begin. It will be identified by its universal confession. It will be identified by its universal confession. Look again at at Peter's uh, confession of of Jesus in 16, right? It says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus' response in verse 18, I tell you, Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. There is in this sentence a, a very obvious wordplay between Peter's word in Greek or Peter's name in Greek, Petros, and the word for rock in Greek, Petra. It means kind of the same thing. And this wordplay between Peter's name and the Greek word for rock has caused no little uh, 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 disturbance or discussion or debate in the church for at least the fi- last 500 years. The debate has been precisely about what will be the chief identifier of the church. What is the rock that Jesus is building the church on? Ultimately, this is not a statement. You are Peter on this rock. I will build my church. This is not a statement by Jesus installing Peter as the first pope, as our friends in the Roman church might believe. Peter's not infallible. Peter's not perfect. Even in the course of the New Testament, Peter is not the sole authority in the life of the church. But Jesus will build the church on Peter, the rock, in the sense that Peter, as a spokesperson for the disciples, is confessing about Jesus the very thing that distinguishes and defines the church through all ages. So, is Peter the first pope? No. But, is Peter the first person to publicly declare that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the very confession that every believer after him will also confess? Yes. So then the chief identifier of the church, the rock upon which Jesus builds his church, is this initial confession of Jesus as the Christ, the son of the living God that is made for the first time by Peter. Peter becomes kind of a, uh, a figurehead in, in, in this sense. He's the first one to publicly declare who Jesus is. And Jesus says, Peter, on this, you you are Peter. And on the rock of your faith and your confession, your example, your your stepping forward in confessing me as the Christ, that's what I'm going to build my church on. This is the very thing that identifies, has identified Christians from non-Christians to this very day, that Jesus is the Christ. It was the message of Peter and Paul and the apostles that we see throughout the book of Acts and in the early church. And it's the core conviction and confession of every true follower of Jesus to this day. 
There is no church except the one that confesses Jesus as the Christ, the son of the living God. Any church, so-called church that confesses anything else about Jesus is not a true church. And what's more, this church is built by Jesus. And because it's built by Jesus, it's indestructible. Jesus says, I'll build, uh, on this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Isn't it good to know that not even the greatest offensive schemes of hell and Satan can overpower the work of God in the church? That is good news. Now look, churches, local churches will close their doors, have closed their doors. Church members will die if they live long enough. But the church, the universal body of all people who confess Jesus as Lord will never stop growing. It will never stop expanding. It will never be deterred. It will never be thwarted. Y'all remember the, uh, oh gosh, I want to say 1990s, but it might have been 1980s horror movie, The Blob, right? This big, okay, good. You all, you all have seen it. What's wrong with you watching those movies? I'm just kidding. But in, in The Blob, you have this big neon pink blob that, that is just like consuming everything around it. And the thing can't be stopped. It just keeps growing. It doesn't matter what you throw at it. It just sucks it up, right? And keeps on going, keeps on moving. Okay. In a non-horrific sense, that is what the church will do. It is indestructible. It will continue to grow. It will continue to expand. It will continue to, y'all are still laughing about the blob, right? It will continue to overpower and overcome the schemes of Satan and his minions until Christ comes Again, the church is indestructible. The church is unstoppable. Now you're never going to think about anything but the blob when you read Matthew 16 again. I know it. But catch this. Jesus not only tells us that he owns the church and he's the chief builder and architect of the church, but that he has even given the church the authority to maintain its integrity. The church will be, as it's built by Christ, kept by its corporate authority. Look at verse 19. Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. You at this point may be wondering, what keys? What is this binding and loosing all about? What are the heavenly implications of binding and loosing things on earth? And who's the one that gets to do it? You may be thinking in, in, in concert or, or, or together with the thought of Peter being the first pope that the keys of the kingdom of heaven have, have something to do with his role as pope. But we know that Peter's not the first pope, so the keys can't be something that the pope holds as, as authority over the rest of the church. It must mean something else. And to better understand what Jesus means by the keys of the kingdom of heaven, we should look to the only other place that he uses this phrase in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. Flip there quickly. It's probably one page away. You may not even have to turn a page. Here, Jesus says this to his disciples. Matthew 18, beginning verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Right? If your brother's got sin, you show him his sin, he repents. Praise the Lord. But if he doesn't listen, take one or two others with you so that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So take some other people with you to show this man his sin. If he repents, praise the Lord. You've won your brother. But... If he refuses, verse 17, to listen to them, tell it to the church. Second time, Jesus uses that word church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, third time he uses the word church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Treat him like a non-believer. If you show a brother his sin three times and he does not repent, treat him like an unbeliever because he's acting like one. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The first time Jesus uses this concept of binding and loosing, he's using it in in the context of the confession of him as Christ, the son of the living God, the confession upon which he builds his church. The second time he uses this phrase about binding and loosing is in the context of, of what we would call church discipline, of approaching a brother or a sister who's walking in sin and needs to repent. As we take these two passages together, we find that binding and loosing seem to be connected simultaneously to the confession of Jesus as Christ and the need for ongoing repentance by Christians. Indeed, you cannot, one cannot, confess Christ as Lord and continue walking in sin. To say that Jesus is Lord and to live your life in disobedience to him is, is self-defeating, it's contradictory. Either the true believer knows Jesus, follows Jesus, and repents of sin when he recognizes, recognizes it, 
Or he walks unrepentantly and gives evidence that he's not really a true believer. In this way, Jesus the King gives authority to the church, that is to those who confess him as Christ, to hold one another accountable to pursuing Christ and personal holiness. So where there's evidence that a brother or a sister, a Christian, a fellow Christian, is not walking in repentance, irrespective of what they say with their mouth, they say, yes, I'm a, I'm a Christian, I follow Jesus, but their life is just full of sin that's been pointed out to them, and they have no desire to repent from it. The church, the collective church, the body of Christ, has the authority to point out that that person is still bound to their sin. You're still bound to that, brother, sister. You're not repenting of it. You're still bound to it. But... Where there's consistent evidence of regular repentance, turning from sin, and growth in Christ, following or coming along with a confession of Jesus as Lord, the church has authority to affirm for that person that you have been freed. You have been loosed from sin. You are being made new in Christ. Praise God. So the church then, by nature of Jesus giving it authority, has authority to keep each other accountable. Say, brother, sister, we need, I need help walking with Christ. You need help walking with Christ. And together we do that. When I see problems in your life, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to say, hey, this is a persistent issue that I think you need to think you need to work on. And I expect that the church would do the same for me or we do so for each other. See what Jesus is doing here. He's setting up a community of believers who will support and encourage and lovingly correct one another. Friends, you Christian, you need the church. You need Christ to be saved. But you need the the church, the gathered body of believers to keep you walking in your faith. You need encouragement. You need loving correction. You need support. You, You need the help of others to study God's word and apply it to your life regularly. Brothers and sisters, you need the church. And so as Jesus builds his church, see see what's going on here. Jesus is the the one who builds it. He's the master architect and and foreman of this this complex, this body called the church. And he's building the church out of believers, confessing believers that he is the Christ, the son of living God. Uh, As Peter writes in his first letter, 1 Peter 2.5, he calls them living stones. We are living stones that are being built on Christ and around Christ. And then Jesus gives authority to the church for discipleship and loving accountability and compassionate discipline, which become the the mortar, the glue that binds the members of the church to each other and to Christ. The things that keep us together are discipleship, helping one another follow Jesus, loving accountability, compassionate discipline. And then he gives us his word, the word of God. These 66 books that we call the Bible to be the the plumb line. The thing that helps us build the walls straight and tall so they don't topple over. He gives us his word as as a buttress, as columns that help hold up the whole edifice that is the church made up of believers confessing Christ, held together by their love for one another and their accountability. Jesus is still building his church. And if we are to grow and to be built up as a church, it must be through our steadfast confession that Jesus is Lord, that he is Christ, the son of the living God. And through the loving accountability and teaching and support that comes in the context of the local church, he will build his church. We will be built up into a God glorifying living edifice that proclaims the gospel in the world and encourages one another to walk in it. Ellie and I started building these little foam blocks of foundation. And then after that, um, we kind of built the thing up. And, and Ellie said, uh, Dad, we need a moat. Because you can't have a castle without a moat. Okay? He, uh, there's the old saying, right? Good fences make good neighbors, right? So houses, homes have fences. My guess is you have a fence around your backyard or maybe your front yard too or cinder block walls like, like we do to, to marcate the boundaries of the land that you own in the same way that Ellie and I built a moat around this castle and you have uh, uh, block walls around your house. Jesus also gives some fences, gives some boundaries for keeping people within the, the, the realm of the, of the church, of believing rightly, thinking rightly. Knowing that, we can turn our attention to the various dangers and distractions that keep people from following Jesus as the Christ. Things that lie outside the walls of what we might would call orthodox Christianity. Things that can be cause for our failing as believers even to follow Jesus steadfastly. And in verses 1 through 12 and then 21 through 23, in two different instances, Jesus warns his disciples against dangers to discipleship. He warns his disciples against dangers to discipleship. 
in verses 1 through 12, we find Jesus being approached again by those who are opposed to him. This time, it's not just the scribes and the Pharisees. Now it's the Sadducees and the Pharisees. These two uh, sort of ruling or leading groups of Jewish people uh, who, who sort of set the tone for religious life in Israel. And they come to Jesus asking him for a sign. Right? They say, it doesn't, we don't even have words for it. They just want a sign from heaven. Jesus, show us, show us some sort of miracle to convince us that you are who people are saying that you are. They did the very same thing in Matthew chapter 12. And just like in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says, look, the only sign that you'll get is the sign of Jonah. It's a very clear way of him pointing to his own impending death and resurrection. Jonah was swallowed by a great fish in the belly of that fish for three days and three nights, spit back up on dry ground. In Matthew chapter 12, we saw several weeks ago that Jesus said the same thing about himself. You want a sign? The only sign I'm going to give you, the only miracle you'll see is one like Jonah. When I die, I'm in the ground for three days, three nights, and then am raised again from the dead. And then he just walks away. He leaves. So he left them and departed, verse 4 says. When he gets to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, though, in verse 5, he turns to his disciples and he warns them about the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. He says in verse 6, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Initially, the disciples, as we saw before, they're confused because they think he's talking about bread and all that they've known for the last few weeks in their ministry is bread and feeding thousands of people. But Jesus gives a gentle correction to their thinking, and he helps them come to the understanding, to the realization, as verse 12 shows us, that Jesus is warning them not about the leaven of bread, not about yeasty dough, but about the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Watch out for what these people teach. So the first danger related to these two groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, is <clears throat> the first danger to discipleship is trust in self. It's a danger to your ability to follow Jesus, trusting in yourself. It's illustrated best by the teaching and the practice of the Pharisees. Just remind us quickly about who the Pharisees were. This is a right, group of ruling Jews who are opposed to Roman governance of Israel at that time, and they desired to be free from Rome. They didn't like that Rome had their governors set over them, and they wanted to be free from them. The Pharisees held really closely to the scriptures, particularly the law, the Torah, first five books of the Old Testament, and also to rabbinic tradition, the traditions of the rabbis. We saw last week in Matthew 15 how they would pervert the law of God or disobey the law of God so that they could obey or keep the traditions of men. And for that, they are corrected by Jesus. The Pharisees loved how good of law keepers they were. They liked how righteous they perceived themselves to be. And in their self-righteousness, they held average people, everyday people, to extreme standards of religious exercise and of righteousness as well. Standards that no one can ever hope to meet. Ultimately, the problem of the Pharisees is, is not that they bound the consciences of other people, but primarily that they trusted in their own self-righteousness to make them right with God. If I just keep all the laws and keep all the traditions, I'll be fine. That's all I have to do, and I'll be right with God. But the problem with this, though, is that no one on his or her own can be righteous enough, can be good enough, can do enough good works to match the infinite holiness of God. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, even especially the Pharisees. We all have sin that keeps us from being able to approach God in his comprehensive holiness. Friend, trusting yourself and in what you can do and how good you are, trusting that on the day of judgment your good works will outweigh your bad works will never make you right with God. And Christians, we, we dangerously think this way sometimes. Yeah, we, we say that, tr that Jesus has saved us, but, but we live in such a way that, that we think that our righteousness after Christ is going to somehow gain extra credit with God. It's like, yeah, I already got the grade that I need, but now I'm going to get a little bit extra credit, boost my grade some. Right? It's not how grace works. It's not how grace works. But we live that way. We think that way. And when we do it, we make it impossible for people who are really far from God to ever know and experience the grace and love of God in our lives as we show them that, look, there's nothing I can do to be good. The good things that I do, anything good that comes out of my life is because Christ has changed me and transformed me. And I do those things for his glory because I know that I am already as, as good with God as I'll ever be as I trust in Jesus. 
As we show people that, extend that kind of love and compassion to them, they can see the grace of God and how it overcomes a, a, a multitude of sin. But if we're always holding people to higher standards, if we're, if we're always telling people, you've got to get your act straight, especially people who are far from God, how can we ever expect them to understand grace, to understand what it is that Christ has done for us, that, that he didn't die for people who already had their act together, that he gave his life so that people who don't have their act together can be made right with God so that God can begin to fix the things in their lives. Friends, when we come to realize that the best thing that we can do, that you can do on your own for God, will never be enough to please him, then you can begin to find rest and peace as you trust in Christ, who's the only sinless son of God who gave himself to be killed and pay the penalty for your sin. If you're trusting in yourself, if you're just trying to do better, stop and trust Christ. Trust in self is the first danger to discipleship that we see illustrated here. But there's a second one that's illustrated by the Sadducees. The second danger is hope in human leaders and institutions. Hope in human leaders and human institutions. The Sadducees illustrate this well in the sense that they uh, politically and, and, and you know, in that day had cozied up to Roman governors. Where the Pharisees hated the Roman governors, the Sadducees wanted to get as close to them as possible. The Sadducees were commonly called the high priests, even though there's only one high priest in Israel at any one given time. Uh, But among them was chosen the high priest all the time and usually appointed or at least approved by Roman governors. The Pharisees looked for temporal and physical blessing from God as they accurately worshipped in the temple. Just figured, we get all the temple stuff right, we'll be good with God, he'll bless the nation, we'll be prosperous. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They thought, once you're dead, you're dead. That's it. But more than anything, the Sadducees were known for wanting the most out of this physical life. Which makes sense. You don't believe in a resurrection. You don't believe life after death. I'm just going to get the most that I can now. I'm going to stockpile all of God's blessing in the few short years that I have here. And they, the Sadducees, like so many before them and after them, look to the best that this life can afford for for meaning and, and, and substance in life. They looked for wealth, status, power, political influence. It's why they cozied up to the Roman governors. Because if the Roman governors like us, they'll let us do what we want to do. We'll have the power that we need. We'll have the political influence that we need. Anything that we want in this life will be ours if we're good with the leaders. Maybe more so than being having this kind of attitude of a Pharisee in our, in our lives today. I think the danger of being like a Sadducee is, is far more likely to the church today. I think it's a greater danger to the church to be like a Sadducee than to be like a legalistic Pharisee. Because it happens so much more subtly. We say and we think things like, If only such and such political party could gain control of the government in this nation. Boy, everything would just work itself out. Everything would be good. If only I could get that promotion at work. Then I could have the influence that I need to make some changes in that department. And then we could really, you know, my life would be better. I'd get a raise and, you know, family stuff would go well. Well, if I could just get my kids into that school with those teachers, they'd be set for life. If only I could be elected or nominated a deacon in my church or teach that small group, then, then I would, I would be able to, you know, start to make some changes. I'd have what I need to do to, to get things right. All I need to do is marry that person, that guy, that gal, or maybe all I need to do is be married. Once I'm married, everything will just figure itself out. It'll all fall into place. Look, not that any of these things are particularly insidious or sinful in and of themselves, But when we start putting our confidence in human leaders, in human institutions, in in gaining influence and wealth and power, status, we start to look to people and, and, uh, and organizations for the ways that they can profit us in this life or profit our children's lives. We exchange the eternal hope that is in Christ for trinkets that will rust and rot and burn away in judgment. Church, watch and beware the dangers of placing your hope in people and in their abilities in this life that you not miss Christ in the process. First danger, trust in self. Second danger, hope in in human leaders and human institutions. The third danger is illustrated not by the Pharisees or the Sadducees, but by Peter. Jesus is one of his closest disciples. Look at verses 21 through 23. 
The danger that Peter illustrates is a misplaced Christology. By that I mean a misunderstanding of who Jesus is and what he must do. Look at verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. That it is necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, began to correct him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Here in verse 21, right after Peter has confessed, Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Peter and Jesus has said, Peter, good for you, man. Right on. You are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church in the very next scene. I mean, maybe not even, but five minutes later, Peter becomes Satan to Jesus. Jesus, as he says, it is necessary for me to die and be raised again. Peter says, no way, Jesus. No way, Jesus. Note that it's really important for us to know an important theological truth and and term at this point. Jesus says, it is necessary for me to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, be killed, and on the third day rise. It is necessary. What we see here is, is a pointing already in Jesus' ministry to the, to the theological term that we have in terms of how we understand how it is that we're saved, uh, penal substitutionary atonement. You ever heard that term before? Penal substitutionary atonement. Penal meaning there is a penalty that is paid. Substitutionary meaning someone in somebody else's place. Atonement meaning made right with God. Penal substitutionary atonement. Punitive in the place of Someone else to make someone right with God. Penal substitutionary atonement, church, is a gospel non-negotiable. Jesus must, he says, die on the cross. Not as a display of the victory of God's loving non-violence over the violence of sin and sinful men, but as a display of God's simultaneous love and justice. Romans 5, 8. Paul says this, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That word for means in the place of or on behalf of us. God's justice is met as he punishes sin in his son, Jesus. It's the only just response of a holy God against sin to punish it. Christ's death on the cross pays a penalty. He was the recipient of God's wrath. God punished Christ for our sins on the cross. And at the same time, God's love is poured out as Jesus, the only God-man without sin, takes the place of sinful people to receive God's wrath for their sin. Substitutionary. Jesus is receiving the penalty for our sin in our place as a substitute. For God to be just and for God to be holy, he has to judge sin. He must punish sin. If he doesn't punish sin, he's not a holy God and he's not a God worth worshiping. But he does punish sin. And he punishes it perfectly in his son Jesus in our place, who took our place on the cross. To deny that Jesus receives the penalty for sin on the cross is to assert that God has not been just. If Jesus doesn't pay the penalty for our sin, there's still a penalty that needs to be paid. And do you know who's on the hook for that? You. Sin still needs to be paid for if Jesus doesn't pay it. On the other hand, to assert that the cross is merely a demonstration of God's love and sacrifice, which it is. The the cross is eternally loving. It It is God's chosen display of love for men and women that he has created in his own image. But to say it's only a demonstration of love and not also a demonstration of wrath and justice is to deny that sin even needs to be paid for. It is to say that God just turns a blind eye to sin. He loves us and his son died and, you know, whatever, but... Nothing, no, there's no sin that needed to be paid for there. In this way, understanding the necessity for Christ to die in the place of sinners. For Jesus' death to be saving, it must be punitive. It must be penal. He must receive some sort of punishment. And it must be substitutionary. It must be in the place of you, in the place of me. 
It's the only way that we can have atonement, that we can be at one with God, is for Christ to die this way. Now, you, you might be wondering, why in the world is Stephen taking so much time to talk about penal substitutionary atonement on a Sunday morning? Because... It it is a core understanding of the gospel that is under attack in the culture in which we live today. There are those like William Paul Young, author of the popular book, The Shack, which was just made into a movie, which, by the way, we'll have a shack book burning out in the parking lot after service today. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I don't like to burn books. I was an English major. There's something strange about that. I'm not saying don't read The Shack, but be aware of what it is that you're reading when you read The Shack. But William Paul Young, author of The Shack, recently in an interview said he doesn't believe in penal substitutionary atonement. He believes that if God the Father punishes his son for the sins of people, that that he is exercising some sort of divine child abuse. And that's just not the kind of God that he wants to worship. And friends, people are buying William Paul Young's book by the millions and paying millions of dollars to see the movie based on the book, right? The, the reason we preach and talk about penal substitutionary atonement, the reason we talk about gospel non-negotiables like this, is because the gospel is being attacked in subtle but insidious ways each and every day. Understand that just like Jesus says, it is necessary for him to die in the place of sinners. And what does Peter do with that? Yep, Lord, you're right. Go on to it. No. Peter says, you've got to be kidding, Jesus. You can't die. Verse 22. Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. No sooner does Peter affirm Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, and he becomes this figurehead for the building of the church, than he misses the point altogether. It seems to me that Peter's understanding of Jesus as king, as Christ, as Messiah, is still couched in these physical and temporal political terms, political understanding. Peter's expecting Jesus to bring a physical, political kingdom, to kick the Romans out of Jerusalem and establish uh, the kingdom of God here on earth, which certainly Jesus wouldn't be able to do if he was dead. So he says, no, Jesus, not going to let you die. But Jesus turns to Peter And affirms to Peter that to keep him from dying is satanically dangerous. Get behind me, Satan. Jesus must die. This is the reason he came. Jesus doesn't come to establish a temporary, earthly, political kingdom, but an eternal kingdom made of the eternally rescued who confess him as the Christ. It is terribly common for individuals, even Christians today, to downplay the necessity of Christ's death for the forgiveness of sins. And to do so is incredibly spiritually dangerous. Even as believers, even as believers, we can look to Jesus on the cross and not see God's punitive wrath on him or not want to see it there on the cross. We think, well, God, just that's just really mean of God. No, it's just of God. It's right of him to do so. To believe or even to live like the greatest problem in the world is something other than the sin that we have that needs to be paid for is satanically harmful to our discipleship. Church, in this world, we must stop living and talking and acting as though everyone is okay and that God will ultimately work it all out in the end for everyone. Friend, you are not okay. You're dead in your sin, Scripture says. Christian, your unbelieving in-laws and neighbors are not okay. They are dead in their sin and separated from God. Jesus is not just a good man who taught people about the love of God and unfortunately died as a political martyr. That's not who he is. Jesus is the sinless son of God who died as a matter of necessity so that the sin that is killing your soul might be forgiven as you trust in Jesus. Don't miss Jesus. Don't miss that Jesus said it was necessary that he die because his death was necessary for the forgiveness of your sin against God. And because Jesus did what was necessary for people who did not deserve it, that's you, that's me, we can freely worship the God who created us and his son who died for us. There's great freedom in understanding that your sin has been paid for in Jesus. You don't have to do anything to fix your sin. Christ has done it for you. All that is left for you is to trust him. To trust him. Not just to believe things, but to trust your life in the hands of the one who gave his life for you. And the dangers to discipleship here in Matthew 16, they're different. Trust in self is different from placing your hope in human institutions and human leaders. It's different from uh, misunderstanding Christ altogether. 
But they all have in common the fact that they stand to keep us from following Jesus rightly and faithfully. If you're trusting in yourself, even just a little bit, you can't trust Jesus fully. If you're hoping in someone else or an institution or for things to work out the right way, you're not hoping entirely in Christ. If you don't understand who Christ is and what it is that he accomplished on the cross for you, you're missing Jesus altogether. These three things that we've seen don't compose an exhaustive list of the dangers and distractions to following Jesus you will face in this life. You will face others. But no matter what competes for your attention or for your devotion in this world or for your discipleship, it is imperative. You must see Jesus clearly. Understand who Christ is. Understand what his death on the cross and his resurrection purchased why it was necessary. It is imperative that you trust him fully, not mostly, fully, and that you hope in him only. Know Jesus clearly. See Jesus clearly. Trust him fully. Hope in him only. And now finally, as Ellie and I were wrapping up our phone block cast, we have the foundation in place. We've got the, the all-important moat is there with drawbridges, and, uh, and, and we have you know, reached its pinnacle. We had some leftover uh, long sort of cylindrical pieces, which, of course, were the people that live in the castle. Okay? And not just anybody can live in the castle, right? Who lives in a castle? The king and the queen and the princes and princesses, mostly princesses, because I have three daughters, so... So we, tar- so we have to like kind of take apart the roof to get all the right people in, right? But, but note this, that, that Ellie did not say, we got to get some peasants in this castle, right? Peasants don't live in castles. Kings and queens live in castles. There's certain kind of people that make up, that live in the body of Christ. And we're not all kings and queens. Praise God, most of us are peasants. And by God's grace, we've been invited into the king's house. But, but there's a certain way, a certain way that we follow Jesus, a certain way that we are the church and live as the church. And so finally, in verses 24 through 28, see how Jesus repaints the picture of discipleship for his followers. Jesus, who builds his church on the cornerstone of the confession of every true believer, every true disciple, that he is the Christ. Jesus, who warns us of our sinful tendencies to wander away from following him faithfully, now reminds his disciples and the church, even today, of what it looks like, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. The first characteristic of a faithful follower of Jesus is self-denial. Jesus says to Peter, or to the disciples in verse 24, If anyone would come after me, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. This is the second time that Jesus has used this concept of taking up one's cross, taking up one's instrument of of death to follow him. He did it also in Matthew chapter 10, verses 38 and 39. The cross-carrying nature of of discipleship, of following Jesus, combined with the fact that Jesus would give his life for the church on a cross, makes clear to us that if we follow Jesus, we are to be like Jesus. The son of the living God who surrendered his sinless life so that sinners can be forgiven calls those same and forgiven sinners to follow him by setting aside their own rights to life and prosperity and comfort to give their lives freely for Christ. There is no greater picture of self-denial than that of Christ on the cross. And Jesus calls his church to no lesser form of discipleship than for each Christian to also take up his cross to follow after Jesus. Look, self-denial like this is incredibly hard. I won't pretend it's easy. It's in our nature. It's in our sinful hearts to look out for what is best for us, what's good for our well-being, what's easy, the path of least resistance. But the life of the Christian is not to be governed by selfish ambition or self-preservation. Instead, as Paul instructs the church at Philippi in Philippians 2, 3, and 4, he says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Humility, self-denial, self-giving is the core mark of a disciple of Jesus. Why? Because that's who Jesus is. Now, look, I don't know how your selfish heart pulls you away from following Christ today. There's probably 150 of us in this room. There's probably 180 different reasons, selfish reasons that are Ways that our hearts pull us from following Christ. But I do know that each one of us has that core disposition to seek what is easy and profitable and comfortable for ourselves before we seek what is most glorifying to God. Jesus says to you today, nail your selfish heart to the cross and kill it. 
so that he can raise it to a new life that wants what he wants, that beats for what God's heart beats, so it can give its every movement to the glory of God. Kill your selfish heart. Deny yourself. Follow Jesus. Second aspect of discipleship that that Jesus repaints for his disciples is wholehearted following. Self-denial, wholehearted following. Look what Jesus says in verses 25 and following. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? What shall a man give in return for his soul? We've heard this from Jesus before too. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Wholeheartedly following Jesus means willingly giving up every single desire, every single plan of your heart, every every expectation that you have for your future or your children's future to replace them with those of Christ, the desires of Christ, the plans of Christ, the expectations that he has. See today, Christian, that you cannot be a little bit worldly in this life and still be a wholehearted follower of Jesus. You can't want a little bit of what you want and still have your whole heart devoted to Christ. High school or college student, look, the kind of life that Jesus has in store for you is so much greater, so much greater than the little things that you think are so important right now, like popularity and academic success and having a good job one day. I can say those things with confidence because I was a high schooler and a college student once. Those are the things I wanted. If I could just be popular, man, that would... Boy, that would fix a lot of things. Just get good grades, do a good school, everything will be all right. Get a good job one day, everything will be taken care of. That's what, I, that's what I lived for in high school. That's what I lived for in college. Jesus wants so much better for you than those things. He wants to take every part of your life and make it matter, not just for a few short years, even for a few short decades, but he wants to make it matter for eternity. It took me into my late 20s to see the awesome wonder of God's glory and grace to us in the cross. It took me till I was almost 30 years old to, to be in rapture of God's glory and grace to us in Jesus. And to be overcome by the thought that I could live my life in such a way that every aspect of my life glorifies God. That, that every bit of me is given to him. And that that is, is not just a good thing to do, but it's the most satisfying thing I can do with my life. And it's not just satisfying for a little while. It's getting me ready for eternity. Young person, understand this. You don't have as much time on earth as you think you do. Spend your life for stuff that matters. Give your life to the glory of God and see how he satisfies your every heart's desire as he purifies you, sanctifies you, makes you like Christ, knowing that all of this is just calisthenics for eternity. You're just getting warmed up for what God has in store for you later. Student, Jesus has made it possible for you to give your whole heart and life to him in these years that you have now for his eternal glory. You want to do something epic? Do something that's going to matter for a long time, impact lots of people. Give your life to Christ and to God's glory in every way. I swear to you, you will not be disappointed. Stay at home, mom. I'm married to one, so I can say this. See how following Jesus with your whole heart will change and fill with meaning your homeschooling hours and your PTA meetings, and dentist visits, and grocery shopping. See how God can take and show you his glory in those teeny tiny little things as as you commit to give every moment to the glory of God. See what he does in your relationships with your, your dental hygienist and your other PTA members as you're living your life for the glory of God every moment. See how he, through your interaction, your loving interaction with grocery store clerks, or other single moms or, or stay-at-home moms in your neighborhood, those that you interact with, whoever it may be, with your children. See how God will change your life as you give every bit of it for his glory. Senior adult, you're 65 or older here. You may be retired from work today. You worked your 30, 40 years. You got to retire. Praise God for that. Yeah. But look, senior adult, there is no retirement from discipleship. 
There is no retirement from following Jesus. See this. See discipleship in your golden years, not as an obligation. But, but see that you have been blessed in these years, in the, maybe the twilight of your life, with free time because you're retired and you don't have to work. Free time to give in service to Jesus through mentoring and discipling younger believers. See how God has gifted you with wisdom and experience and a love for the church to impart to others as you point people to Jesus. Senior adult, don't fall into the trap of thinking that you've done your part and now is your time to rest. And in so doing, rob yourself of the joy of actively magnifying Jesus and growing in your wholehearted devotion to following him in these, your best years. Senior adults, spend your retirement. Give your retirement. Give your best years in this life with all of the wisdom and experience and love for Christ that you have to glorifying God with every fiber of your being. Give the freedom, the free time you have to mentoring, discipling young believers, to showing them how they ought not to waste their life in petty things like popularity and looking for a good job and all that. Not that those are bad things, but they're petty, they're small. Show us younger believers how to want better, to live for greater things, eternal things. So with self-denial, hearts of self-denial and wholehearted devotion to Christ, As disciples, we can also, thirdly, look forward with glorious expectation. Look at verses 27 and 28. The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Disciples of Jesus, look forward with glorious expectation. There's been... No little debate either uh, about verses 27 and 28 and what this means. Specifically, verse 28, when Jesus says, There's some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Is Jesus talking about a second coming? Is he talking about his resurrection from the dead? What is he talking about here? We don't have time for that. And for that, you say amen. And we'll look at it uh, another time, another sermon. But, but listen to this. The disciples whom Jesus said these things to most certainly did see Jesus coming in glory with his kingdom. They saw him raised from the dead and the glory he shares with God the Father. They saw him ascend to heaven. These disciples experienced the glorious falling of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, which empowered them and every believer after that day with all the wisdom, boldness, and courage that they would need to faithfully preach the gospel to the world. These disciples were on the front lines of watching the kingdom of heaven grow as the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection invaded the nations, drawing people from all over the world to trust in Jesus' church. We today who have been saved by God's grace to us through faith in Jesus. And as we give ourselves to self-denying, wholehearted following, God-glorifying discipleship, we can look ahead in this life with glorious expectation of seeing the kingdom of heaven grow as we do what the first disciples did. Trust Jesus. Lovingly share the gospel. Bear witness to the saving grace of God. And watch it invade the hearts of of hardened sinners. All of this we do in glorious expectation is just a foretaste of the glory that will be when Jesus does come again to judge the nations and to call the church, his bride, to his side for eternity. Christian, do you look with expectation, not just, not just to the day when Christ comes again, but do you look with glorious expectation for the day when your children and grandchildren enter the kingdom of heaven by trusting Jesus? That's a glorious day. Christian, are you taking confidence in the king who has conquered sin and death and with glorious expectation of his coming, invading kingdom, set yourself on the front lines of the advance of Christ's kingdom, even now as you make it the aim of your life to know Christ and to make him known to a lost world? Christian, have you denied yourself with wholehearted devotion and given yourself to seeing the kingdom of heaven grow in you and change the lives of others? The same glorious expectation that Christ promised and gave to the disciples is for you and for me. Because every time a lost sinner sees their need for Christ and forgiveness of their sin and in trust gives their lives to Jesus, repents of their sin, right? The kingdom is advancing. Christ is coming in his kingdom. And that is a glorious transformation as lost people come to Christ that we all should look forward to with expectation. We should expect it to happen. 
Because we're doing what Christ has commanded us to do. Making disciples of all nations. Being his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. In conclusion, let me say this, friends, church. Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords who is building for himself a people, a church who confess him as Lord. A church that will give their lives to advance his kingdom. There's no greater love than that which Christ displayed as he died for you. If you don't know Christ today, know this. He loved you enough to give his life to pay for your sins on that cross. And church, there is no higher calling than for we who bear our Savior's name to lay every part of our lives at the feet of Jesus to follow him wholly. There is no greater, there is no greater calling. There's no higher calling. There's nothing better to do with your life than that. There's no greater joy than to wonder and worship at how Jesus builds his church as we confidently point people to the Son of God who takes away the sins of the world. It is my desperate plea to you today, church, that we not waste our lives on lesser things than these. Let's pray.